You know, it's been said, people don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. How true that is. Cold, matter-of-fact, insensitive proclamations of the gospel are not enough. This is why the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesians, speaking the truth in love, that phrase, in love, makes all the difference, doesn't it? It's love that primes the pump of faith. A person is more prone to believe in God's love when they first sense that love from another person. And Jeremiah was a prophet of God who certainly loved God's people. He was called because he cried, and he cried because he cared. Jeremiah reveals his heart for God's people at the end of chapter 8 and in the beginning of chapter 9. Let's pick it up tonight in verse 4 of chapter 8. He says, Moreover, you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? You know, God knows there's times in our walk with Him when we stumble. Temptation can draw us away. We can get distracted. But when we fall, God expects us to get up. When we turn away, the Father calls us and we run back. God, like most fathers, teaches His kids, it's not how many times you fall that matters as long as you get back up one more time than you get knocked down. And yet the Jews at the time weren't your typical kids. For rather than rise, rather than return, they stayed in their backslidden state. Notice verse 5. For why has this people slidden back? Jerusalem, in a perpetual backsliding. They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. God's people were guilty of perpetual backsliding. They fell and refused to rise. They turned away and never returned. They discounted God's mercies and they used their failure as an excuse to wallow in their sin. Verse 6, I listened and heard, but they did not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes into the battle, like a war horse, galloping headlong into the battle, fearlessly into the battle. The people of Jerusalem, they threw themselves into sin and rebellion with the same sort of intensity. There was no hesitation beforehand. There was no remorse afterwards. No one thought, what have I done? He says, even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times. And the turtle dove, the swift, and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. Now the stork and the turtle dove, the swift and the swallow are all migratory birds. At the first cold breeze of winter, they fly to warmer climates. And they always return. This is the thing. They go south for the winter, but they always come back. And this is what Jeremiah can't figure out about the Jews. Why, after tasting of the consequences of their sin, why don't they rush back to the Lord? Why don't they return to Him? It's not fair to call God's people bird brains, since even the birds themselves had more common sense. Verse 8, For how can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Once you've turned your back on the Lord, you've set yourself up to be taken in by all manner of deception and falsehood. Jeremiah asks, Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? In short, once you've fallen from God, you fall for anything. Once you've rejected the word of the Lord, what words of wisdom do you have? And it's because of their backsliding, not their occasional backsliding, take note, but their perpetual backsliding that God is going to judge the citizens of Jerusalem. He says, therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them. 
Because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. What a sad scenario it was. Even God's representatives, the pastors at the time were corrupt. He says, for they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. They healed them slightly. In other words, it was as if they gave a few aspirin to a person who'd been diagnosed with cancer. Their cure might have made the patient feel better, sort of a placebo, but it offered no real healing, no real cure. They healed the hurt only slightly. And this was their cure, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. God had pronounced judgment over this wicked nation, and yet the prophets falsely assured them of peace. Stick your head in the sand and your problems will pass. That was the message. Verse 12. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Is this not America today? Previously, previous generations, biblically informed generations, would have viewed homosexual marriage as a perversion. As an abomination. Today, rather than cause shame, it's accepted. Sexual morality or standards no longer exist. It's anything goes today. We no longer know how to blush. Hey, if every human impulse is validated as normal, it represses our natural sense of modesty. Our collective conscience becomes seared. And this is why immorality is not only a sin against the individual, but against the society. For it compounds the moral decay. And this is why God judges the nation as a whole, not just its individuals. He says, therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishment, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grapes shall be on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. And the leaf shall fade, and the things I have given them shall pass away from them. In other words, the nation's prosperity will dry up. God will remove his blessing. And is this kind of judgment not far from America? Now chapter 8, verse 13, through the end of chapter 9, is actually read in Jewish synagogues each year, on the ninth day of the month of Av. Av is a month on the Jewish calendar. It corresponds with our G July and August. And one of the ironies of history is that both Solomon's temple and Herod's temple, 656 years later, were burned and toppled on the exact same date, the ninth of Av. Or as the Hebrews say, Tisha B'Av is an infamous date in Jewish history. And here is the funeral dirge that is sung as a remembrance. Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter the fortified cities and let us be silent there. For the Lord our God has put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. Where are the priests and the prophets now with their peace, peace? God has silenced them. You know, one day, God is going to silence all of humanity. Today is what we call the day of man. Mankind is having his say. Mankind is getting his way. But the Bible warns us of the day of the Lord. When God will have his say, and God will get his way. He says, we looked for peace, but no good came, and for a time of health, and there was trouble. I mean, God's people had been deceived by the priests and the prophets. And this is a warning to us. Not everyone who speaks in the name of God speaks the truth of God. Do you know this? You should. This is why we need to check out what we hear with what was written in Scripture. How does a man's teaching square with the Bible? This should be our question. We have to be discerning people. Remember, this was the case with the believers in Berea. 
In Acts chapter 17 and in verse 11, we're told that they cross-checked the teaching that they'd heard from Paul with the scriptures that they'd read. And it was said of these Bereans, they were more noble in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Some Christians are gullible. They just assume that a so-called man of God will speak the words of God. But you know, that doesn't explain why so many Christians today have bought into false ideas and doctrine. It's not just that we're gullible. You know, it shouldn't take long for a new believer to shed his gullibility. No, I think the big reason that Christians are duped today, that they're so often deceived, is that they're just plain lazy. We want the teacher to do all the work for us. We want him to study. We want him to search. We want him to teach. Rather than receive the word with a readiness. Rather than search the scriptures daily for ourselves. Hey, we just assume that what we're taught is true. And sometimes that assumption can be deadly. Well, that's what had happened in Jeremiah's day. God's people believed the lies of the priests and the prophets. And they refused to acknowledge the coming judgment of which verse 16 describes. The snorting of his horses were heard from Dan. Dan, of course, is the northernmost part of Israel. And from there, the men of Judah, even in the south, heard the Babylonian war horses snorting and stomping their hooves and preparing for battle. War was on the horizon. It says the whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of the strong ones, for they have come and devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell in it. For behold, I will send serpents among you, vipers which cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, says the Lord. The priests and the prophets had predicted peace, but the invaders, this warring army, would be like a serpent that cannot be charmed. There'll be no negotiations or treaties with this army. Babylon won't be satisfied until they take a bite out of God's people. And how does Jeremiah respond to such dire warnings? I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. See, Judah is about to be taken into exile, and the prophet here gets a glimpse of the future. Now, usually, a prophet sees into the future. That's why he's called a seer. But here, Jeremiah hears into the future. Judah is crying in remorse and in regret. She's been taken into captivity. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images with foreign idols? I mean, while there was still time for deliverance, while her king was in Zion, the people refused to repent and followed after idols. Which leads to one of the saddest, most heart-wrenching verses in all of the Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 20. The harvest is past. The summer is ended, and we are not saved. Israel had two harvests. The wheat or grains were harvested in the springtime, whereas the fruits were all gathered in the fall. Grapes are harvested in September, but if you wait until November, you lose the crop. The grapes wither on the vine. The grower has a door of opportunity, and if he misses it, there's no going back. No mulligans. And the same is true with our salvation today. There is a season in God's plan for man's is there's a season in God's plan for man for people to be saved. But when that season passes, the door of opportunity is shut. It's gone. This is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 2, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. You know, today God is holding out hope. Come to Jesus and all will be forgiven. All will be forgotten. But if you wait too late and pass from time into eternity, you forfeit all possibility for change. This is the key feature of eternity. 
You see, however you enter the eternal state, you remain in that state forever. If you're in Christ, then you're in Christ forever. If you're outside Christ, then you'll be outside Christ forever. There are no second chances. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And you are not saved, says the prophet. I think the worst aspect of hell is its hopelessness. Never mind the fire and brimstone. The greatest torture is knowing that there is no possibility for a change of condition. Imagine the folks outside the ark when it started to rain. Imagine them beating on the door. Open up! Open up! But the door doesn't open. The opportunity has passed. The harvest is over. The summer is ended and you are not saved. And this will be the case one day. When the harvest is past, it's past. Today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ today. And if there are people you love, it's time to win them and to share with them the gospel today. He says, for the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Jeremiah's grieving. He can't believe what's happening to God's people it was so unnecessary. Look at what he says. <clears throat> Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Balm of Gilead. That's a, an old expression. that is sung in many of the old hymns. What does it mean? Well, Gilead is east of the Jordan River, north of Moab, and it was the home of the storax tree, from which a rosin or a gum could be extracted. And the gum of this tree had healing properties. And thus the expression, is there no balm in Gilead, is the equivalent of us saying, is there no oil in Texas? Is there no peaches? Are there no peaches in Georgia? Texas is known for its oil, as is Georgia for its peaches. And likewise, Gilead was known for this balm, this medicinal balm. In essence, he's saying, is there no balm in Gilead? Of course there's a balm in Gilead. Gilead was famous for this. And there is a cure for Judah's sin. That's what he's saying. God is the physician. God is this great balm, this healing force. God is willing to save and to heal and to help, but His people have to be willing to call on His name. Again, the door of opportunity will close one day, but for the moment, God is on the edge of His seat, eager to save. Well, Jeremiah 9 begins. Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain, of the daughter of my people. And here's where he gets his name, the weeping prophet. Jeremiah felt for God's people. His heart bled, his tears flowed. He cried so profusely, he compared himself to a bubbling fountain. He wept day and night. You see, rather than bury his head in the sand, this man opened his eyes. He saw people as God sees people. And let me warn you, it's costly when you begin to see people through God's eyes. Don't ask to see as God sees if you're not prepared for your heart to be broken. Jeremiah cared, and it cost him some sleep, cost him some tears. You know, I think what most characterizes our modern age is apathy. Are we willing to see through God's? God would give us his eyes if we, if we were willing to accept what, what, would, uh, what it would cause. You know, modern life is so frenetic. We end up going in a million directions and we never focus on what truly matters. We rub shoulders with people all day long, but do we care? Do we see their souls? Do we see them as God sees them? I think so often we calculate through our lives rather than feel our way through our lives. 
Lois Cheney writes of our modern times, she says, Feeling blue? Buy some clothes. Feeling lonely? Turn on the radio. Feeling despondent? Read a funny book. Feeling bored? Watch TV. Feeling empty? Eat a Sunday. Feeling worthless? Clean the house. Feeling sad? Tell a joke. Ain't this modern age wonderful? You don't got to feel nothing. There's a substitute for everything. God have mercy on us. Indeed, God have mercy. See, music plays in our heads constantly. But when was the last time a song played on your heartstrings? When were you passionate enough to become more involved? To really care? To risk something of yourself to reach out to another? And I'd suggest the first concern that should draw our attention to the souls of the folks around us. Doesn't the thought of your family and your friends and your neighbors dying and heading to hell, doesn't that upset you? When was the last time you wept over the soul of another person? When was the last time your concern for their salvation drove you to tears? It's been said a missionary is not just the person who crosses the sea, but who sees across the street. Listen to this challenge by the late Keith Green. Do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care, don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. Oh, bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. You know, it's all I ever hear. No one aches. No one hurts. No one even sheds one tear. But he cries. He weeps. He bleeds. And he cares for your needs. And you just lay back and keep soaking it in. Oh, can't you see it's such sin. He says, open up, open up, and give yourself away. You see the need. You hear the cries. So how can you delay? God's calling, and you're the one, but like Jonah, you run. He's told you to speak, but you keep holding it in. Oh, can't you see it? Such sin. The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the dead, and you can't even get out of bed. Jeremiah ached, and he hurt, and he shed a tear for the salvation of Judah. Verse 2. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go for them. For they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. Now, Jeremiah refused to abandon his people as much as he was tempted to do so. Neither did he whitewash or excuse away their sin either. He loved God's people enough to tell them the truth. And like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. The Jews claim to know God, but but I hope you know, not everyone who claims to know God really does. He says, everyone take heed to his neighbor and do not trust any brother. For every brother will utterly supplant and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. In other words, integrity, being true to one's word, had become a rarity. Dishonesty was the norm. In Jeremiah's day, no one could be trusted any longer. You know, there was a day not long ago in America when a man's word was his bond. There was an unwritten code of ethics among people. Folks trusted one another. In fact, you could do business on a handshake. Oh, but not today. You better get it in writing. And then you need to have a lawyer who can spin it your way in court. The old saying is true. Trust everybody, but always cut the cards. We need to make sure as God's people that we walk 
in integrity that people can count on our word. Verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and try them. For how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? Their tongue is an arrow shot out. <laughs> Think of that. The tongue, an arrow. <clears throat> you know, shot out. It speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. Folks just taking opportunities to deceive one another and con each other. You know, folks today are looking for opportunities to take other people to court, to strike a rich payday. Did you know that America has more lawyers per capita than any other country in the world? No surprise. It indicates our lack of ethics and integrity. He says, shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? And of course, God is justified in his judgment. He says, I will take up a weeping and wailing for the mountains and for the dwelling places of the wilderness, a lamentation, because they are burned up so that no one can pass through nor can men hear the voice of the cattle. Both the birds of the heavens and the beasts have fled. They are gone. In other words, the ravages of war will impact the land. And, it, and once again, it will cause Jeremiah to weep. He says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. Who is the wise man who may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken, that he may declare it? Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through? It's like God saying, picking out the suburbs around Atlanta and saying, I'm going to make these places barren, uh, deserted ghost towns. Places for wild dogs and deer to roam. Things like that. Judgment's coming. And the reason for judgment is no secret. For God declares it in the following verses. And the Lord said, Because they have forsaken my law which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it, but they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the bales which their fathers taught them, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood, or literally with bitterness, and give them water of gall to drink. I will scatter them also among the Gentiles, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send a sword after them until I have consumed them. Verse 17, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women that they may come and send for skillful wailing women that they may come. In, in ancient Israel, you could call for professional mourners to attend a funeral and to weep and wail for the deceased. Their efforts sort of added to the angst. It kind of brought up the level of the grief. I'm sure it often turned hypocritical. But it was intended to help the grieving express themselves and express their hearts. Here in verse 18, Jeremiah hires these mourners to attend the funeral of God's people. He says, let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may run with tears and our eyelids gush with water. These Jews were cold and hard. They needed help in expressing their grief. He says, for a voice of wailing is heard from Zion, how we are plundered. We are greatly ashamed because we have forsaken the land, because we have been cast out of our dwellings. Zion, that is Jerusalem, will do a lot of mourning. They'll be greatly ashamed. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing and everyone her neighbor a lamentation. Rather than hire the professional mourning, it would be cheaper for the Jews to just teach their women and neighbors to wail. There'll be plenty of reason to do so, Jeremiah says. For death has come through our windows and entered our palaces <clears throat> to kill off the children, no longer to be outside, and the young men 
no longer on the streets. <clears throat> what a horrible image. Like a burglar in the night, death creeping through the windows. <clears throat> the playgrounds will be empty of kids. You'll no longer see the teenagers hanging out on the street corners. They'll both die in war. <coughs> Speak, says the Lord. Even the carcasses of men shall fall as, re as refuse on the open field, like cuttings after the harvester, and no one shall gather them. Verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. And these are three traits that people today value most, don't they? Wisdom and strength and riches, mind and muscles and money, academics and athleticism and acquisition. And it's amazing how little things have changed over the last 2,500 years. You know, here's where people like to boast. Here's what they value most. They like to file their degrees and flex their muscles and flaunt their wealth. And yet Jeremiah warns us, beware, glory not in these things. You know, 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 tells us, the world is passing away. Boy, never forget that. This world is fleeting. It's temporary. The best education, it becomes outdated so quickly. Strength and build up your muscles. But it's amazing how... How quickly they shrivel. Money vanishes. You know how quick money goes. As soon as I get it, it tells me goodbye. Boasting in wisdom or in might or in riches is an empty boast. We should know that. But let him who glories glory in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Wisdom and might and riches are okay, but it's the knowledge of God that is most important. To receive God's loving kindness, to recognize His judgments, to admire His righteousness, this is cause to boast. This should raise our eyebrows. And create an aura of privilege that we know God. Next Saturday, thanks to my son's invitation, I'll play golf at Augusta National Golf Club. I'm pretty pumped about it. And if you know anything about golf, you realize what a privilege, what a rare opportunity this happens to be. And everyone that I've told about this gives me the same response of astonishment. Whoa, really? They're in awe. And this is how we should react to the privilege of knowing God. You know God? Whoa, wow, whoa, wow, man. You don't say knowing God? You don't get any better than that. If we're going to glory, glory in this, that we understand and that we know the Lord. This is the true privilege in life. Verse 25. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. uncircumcised. Notice the Jews with the Gentiles. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. The Jews were proud that they were circumcised physically. They trusted in this one-time operation as sort of a get-out-of-judgment-free card. And yet God promises that they'll be judged along with the Gentiles. You know, they may have been circumcised physically, but not spiritually. Their wicked ways had not been cut back and removed. Verse 10 Hear the word, a chapter 10, I'm sorry. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the Gentiles, 
Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. Now, Jeremiah is speaking specifically of the evil of astrology. We worship the Creator, not the creation. The stars in their orbits don't govern our lives. It's God who governs and determines the path of the stars. It is interesting, though, that Jeremiah mentions how that the Gentiles were dismayed by the stars, by the heavenly bodies. It's interesting, all the ancient civilizations had an unusual, a disproportionate, we might say, fear of the planet and the stars. I mean, think about it. Uh, This was before the days of telescopes. We're talking about faint, tiny little patches in the sky. What provoked such fear of the planets and of the heavenly bodies? Why did the Gentiles look up into the, the sky in fear, the cosmos? In fact, the ancients even gave names to the planets that they barely saw. That, that to the naked eye was, was almost indistinguishable. You know, the days of the weeks are named after the planets. And the ancients had a particular fixation on the planet Mars. The false god Baal was tied to Mars. Rome was said to be founded by the god of Mars. It's fascinating that prior to 701 B.C., all the ancient calendars had a 360-day year. But after that date, after 700 B.C., the calendars were adjusted to account for a change in the Earth's rotation. Each culture altered the calendar just a little bit differently, but they all knew a recalibration was needed. The Romans added five and a quarter days to their calendar. The Hebrews added an extra month when needed. But obviously, something happened to the earth's rotation. There is a theory that I've read about that I believe has some merit. It's quite provocative, for it flies in the face of modern assumptions about our planetary system. It's been written about by NASA scientist Donald Wesley Patton in his book, Catastrophism in the Old Testament. And it was also written, by, written about by a colleague of Albert Einstein, a man named Emmanuel Velikovsky, in his book, Worlds in Collision. Patton believed that at one time in the past, the Earth and Mars had orbits that brought them precariously close to one another. Some years within 28,000 miles or eight times as close as the earth is to our moon. If this is true, it means that when the ancient peoples looked up into the night sky, the planet Mars appeared 230 times larger than the moon appears to us. That would have been a terribly frightening sight. Patton calls these close orbits, these close encounters, near flybys. And he says that they would have caused incredible cataclysmic phenomena on the earth. In fact, according to Patton, these near flypies were cyclical. And thus they were known about by the ancients in advance. In fact, ancient armies used them to plan their battles. Patton suggests that these flybys could have been the natural phenomena that God used to set off Noah's flood. Or the confusion at the Tower of Babel or the destruction of Sodom. Or the long day of Joshua. This might even be the phenomena that causes the cataclysmic events of the revelation in the end times. Perhaps this could happen again. It's interesting. Jonathan Swift wrote Gulliver's Travels in the year 1726. And in his story, he mentions the two moons of the planet Mars. And amazingly, their approximate distance from the planet. Now, how did he know that? The scientific community didn't discover the two moons of Mars until 1877, over 150 years later. They were spotted through the lens of the high-powered telescope at the United States Naval Observatory in Washington. How did Jonathan Swift know about them 150 years earlier without the aid of a telescope? Perhaps he was drawing upon ancient legends inspired by these near flybys during which the moons of Mars had become visible in the sky. 
One thing is for sure, if these flybys had occurred, it would explain here, verse 2, why the Gentiles were so dismayed or so afraid of the planets. It's strange that they worship objects that they would have, wouldn't have even been able to see. Astrologers tried to chart their futures through their alignments. This is one explanation of how astrology came to hold such an evil grip on the ancient world. People allowed fear to overcome their faith. They ended up worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And of course, God always wants us to live by faith, not by fear. And so verse 3 tells us, For the customs of the peoples are futile. For one man cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold, They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. And every now and then at Christmas time, some well-meaning Scrooge pulls out Jeremiah chapter 10 and uses this verse to forbid Christmas trees. Not so. Jeremiah is describing the idolatry of his day, not Christmas trees. These were trees that the pagans cut into phallic symbols and used in the worship of the Babylonian fertility rites and gods. Of course, it is true that in the past, the Yule log, the predecessor of the Christmas tree, did have pagan origins, as do many other of our Christmas and Easter customs. And yet, just because a practice was pagan in the past doesn't mean that it can't be redeemed and reinterpreted today. As far as I'm concerned, a Christmas tree has nothing to do with paganism. It represents Christ. It's evergreen, which speaks of his everlasting life. The lights are reminders of Jesus, the light of the world, and the fact that we should be lights for him too. Even the gold garland seems fitting for a king. Paul told the Corinthians that they could eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, as long as in doing so, they didn't cause someone else, another believer, any confusion or an opportunity to stumble. In other words, meat is just meat. God created it. There's nothing evil about it. Just make sure that no one equates your eating with idolatry. And I think this principle applies to Christmas trees. A tree is a tree. It's God's creation, and I doubt anyone who sees me setting up my Christmas tree thinks I'm sacrificing to idols. They think, man, he's late, and he's just, his wife has gotten on his case, and now he's putting up that Christmas tree. That's probably what they think. Although I don't really put up the Christmas tree. My wife does that. And so, don't use Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 3. To bash Christmas trees. Verse 5. Verse 5 continues to talk about the pagan trees that the Jews were turning into idols. It says they were they are upright like a palm tree, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. I mean, why would you want to serve a God who can't speak and has to be carried wherever he needs to go? Not much of a God. He says, Do not be afraid of them. For they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. In essence, these idols were powerless. They can't do evil, they can't do any good. They're powerless, they're worthless, they're impotent. Of course, that doesn't mean that idolatry is harmless. The idol, yes, but not idolatry. For in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says that though the idol and the sacrifice to it is nothing... The worship of it is something. By worshiping or sacrificing to an idol, you are connecting with the demon behind that idol. Thus Paul says when you come to the Lord's table, you are fellowshipping, you are communing with the spirit behind the sacrifice, with the spirit behind the table, or the Lord's spirit. Take the idol out of the context of its idolatry and it's just a stick of wood. But in the hands of that demon behind it, that idol is an evil thing that should be avoided at all costs. And this gives us some insight as to how to handle Ouija boards and tarot cards and seances and horoscopes. 
Yes, these are just inanimate objects or people getting together, but the goal is to use things, these things, to circumvent God and to tap into satanic power. And thus, this makes them evil to Christians, and we should avoid them at all costs. He says, Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Silver is beaten into plates. It is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. The work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the metalsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skillful men. These idols had to be decorated and spruced up by the work of men's hands. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure His indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. Verse 11 is interesting. It is the only verse in the book of Jeremiah that was actually written in Chaldean, which was the language of the Babylonians. All the other verses were Hebrew, but this verse was written in Chaldean. Apparently, Jeremiah wanted Babylon as well as all the nations to take heed to to this judgment. Jeremiah continues to describe the, the magnificence and the sovereignty of his God He has made the earth by His power. He has established the world by His wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at His discretion. Imagine God unrolling galaxy after galaxy after galaxy. The vast expanse of space God stretched out. When He utters His voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heaven and He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. God oversees the hydrologic system as the water falls from heaven and then rises back up in the moisture and replenishes itself. He also brings the wind out of his treasuries. The wind is a mystery. Even modern meteorologists have a difficult time understanding the wind currents and how they operate. Jeremiah says that God is the one who brings them from their storehouses. God is over all things. He's sovereign, even over nature. In other words, Mother Nature has a father. His name is God, Yahweh. Everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image, for his molded image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Idols are impotent. They're silly, he says, The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. In verse 17, Gather up your wares from the land, O inhabitant of the fortress. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land and will distress them that they may find it so. In other words, pack your bags. An invasion is about to begin. God is going to uproot His people from the land that He gave them. And how does Jeremiah feel about this? Woe is me for my hurt. My wound is severe. But I say, truly, this is an infirmity, and I must bear it. My tent is plundered, and all my cords are broken, My children have gone from me, and they are no more. Jeremiah saw the Jews as his own children, and they'll soon be hauled off to Babylon. There is no one to pitch my tent anymore or set up my curtains. Verse 21, for the shepherds, or that is the leaders of the nation, have become dull-hearted and have not sought the Lord. Therefore they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. Behold, the noise of the report has come, and a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate 
a den of jackals. Here's the warning. The Babylonians are on the way. Beware. O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Oh, you think you're the captain of your own ship. You think you're the master of your own fate, the shaper of your own destiny. Well, I hate to tell you, but you're not. God positions people. God determines our circumstances. We are pawns on his chessboard, and God alone moves the pieces. Proverbs 16, verse 9 puts it this way. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Here's the shorter version. Man proposes, but God disposes. (laughs) And this is why we're called on to be both faithful and flexible. God can and will and often does change our direction in midstream. He tests us to see if we're really following Him or just going through the motions. At times we need to adjust and remain faithful. Notice verse 24. O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Jeremiah knew that God could bring him to nothing and he would be justified in doing so. He was leaning on God's mercy. He says, pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you and on the families who do not call on your name. For they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him and consumed him and made his dwelling place desolate. Jeremiah 10 verse 25 is often quoted or quoted annually by the Jews at their Passover Seder in many of the Seders. This verse ends what's called the Temple Discourses, chapters 7 through 10. And it was these blistering judgments against the temple and against the religious establishment, the priests and the prophets, that brought the religious hierarchy down on Jeremiah. After these sermons, after these chapters, and after him delivering them right there in the confounds of the temple... All of a sudden, these priests and prophets that he's exposed, now they're out to get him. Now they're even plotting his assassination. And so next time, we find out what happens. The plot thickens. 